Let's just begin as we open God's word in prayer. Lord God, with your word open before us, we pray again that by your spirit that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you would teach us from your word. May we receive it, Lord, in such a way, Lord, that we can be built up in our most holy faith and that we might apply it again into our lives as we witness to your love and your grace to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Is that better? Good. Okay. You see that I've titled this morning's message The Problem of Self, meaning self-centeredness. It's what's called a topical sermon. And I want to do this by looking at some of these characters in the book of Esther, and particularly here in this first chapter. I would understand that most of you have read the Old Testament story of Esther and you're fairly familiar with all of the events that take place. Esther, of course, she's the heroine of the story. She's a Jewish girl who became queen of Persia and saved her people from being annihilated in that country. It's a nice story. But have you ever asked the question, why is this book of Esther included in the Old Testament? Why is it included in Scripture? You see, God's name is never mentioned in the book. There's no references to him whatsoever. There's no miracles. It forms no part of prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's a fair question. Why? You see, in some places, these Old Testament books, they seem to have little relevance to us in our time. And so we ask that question, is there there anything that we can learn from this book that's relevant to us today? Well, yes, there is. Because if there's one thing that you can be sure of, God is very much in every aspect of what this book of Esther teaches us. This dear colleague of mine once commented, he said, the Lord is conspicuous by his absence. And so the morning, what I want to do firstly in such there is to look at this first chapter and do a couple of character studies that I hope that will be helpful and encouraging to you. And this first message, as I said, is about self and how this plays out in our relationships with one another. Hopefully you'll see why God, and we need to put God first in all our relationships. Lord Williams, there's a second message that I'd like to speak to you about at some time in the future about God's foreordaining purpose in our lives, which becomes also very evident in this book. There are five main characters in this book that are mentioned. This morning we'll just be basically looking at two or three. There's the king of this Persian empire, Ahasuerus, or Exorcist as he is sometimes known. 
There's his wife Vashti. There is Mordecai the Jew, who is a cousin or uncle of Esther. And there is Esther the Jew, who became queen. And there's a real evil piece of work, a man by the name of Haman. As I said this morning, I want to look more closely at Asherah's and Vashti and see what's relevant to us in their relationship. And firstly, I want you to consider this. In this first chapter, we read about Asherah's and he throws a party for all the people and ostensibly to show off his benevolence to them. If you stop and think about it, all he's doing is satisfying his own ego. It's about self. His wife Vashti refuses to submit to her husband's demands to put herself on display. She's and she's banished. And you ask the question, what should our initial response should be if that was that situation? Should our response to Vashti be, good on you, lady? Standing up for women's rights, you're not to be treated in such a manner. Yeah. What about obedience to your husband? Unless we read further through this story, we have Esther. Esther's a Jew, and she's a covenant child of God. She allows her name to be put forward by Mordecai to enter a beauty contest to become a concubine in a pagan king's harem. What about her obedience to God? Next, when we read further through this story, we see there, and so it's there, you need to ask that question, who's right and who's wrong? Firstly, let's look at Asherius. As we read through this story, we see this man, he likes his drink. He gets angry and he passes stupid laws that people can't possibly obey. And then there is Vashti, a thoroughly modern woman ahead of her time. And if you look there in verse 12, she refuses to obey her husband's demands. Their marriage is on the rocks. And in verse 13, he asks his advisors, what should I do? Let's bring it into a modern day context. Do you know people of marriages in situations like that? If you do, what advice would you give them? What advice would you give them if this man comes to you and says, my wife won't listen or do anything that I tell her? Look at the advice that this wise man, these so-called wise men, gave the king from verse 17 onwards. Pray it down. Basically, what they're saying to him is, your wife has insulted you. She's bruised your male ego. She sets a bad example for all other women. 
We recommend that you pass a law commanding that all wives obey their husbands' demands. Can you imagine a law being passed like that in New Zealand today? <laughs> yeah, right. But you see, don't laugh, because you see, that's exactly the situation that exists in Persia today, or modern Iran. That's exactly as it is for, for women in other Islamic countries as well. There are laws that are made under the guise of religion. But, but ultimately, they're there simply to satisfy self. Man's selfishness. You see... This king, Asherius, his advisors told him what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear. The problem is keeping self-satisfied. Applied to his so-called wise men also. They gave him the right advice because they were looking after their own interests. What if I tell him what he really needs to hear? He's looking after self as well. Let's bring it into a modern context. <clears throat> because then there's another problem. What might happen to us and such there if this man comes to you but he's got just enough knowledge of Scripture to be dangerous? And he says to you, aren't there verses in the Bible telling wives to obey their husbands? How are you going to answer him? He's an unbeliever. What are you going to say to him? Oh, yes, there are. There's verses in Ephesians and 1 Peter. But they're for Christians and they don't apply to you. That'll go down really well. You see, the correct advice would be that perhaps you need to read the verses in full and not just take part of a verse to suit your own purpose and satisfy self. The verse in Ephesians, in its full context, says from Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands, but then, as to the Lord. It then goes on to say that the husband should regard his wife in the same way as Christ regards his church, loving and willing to die for her. That's the true measure of love and obedience. You see, there's this problem and such there that people in satisfaction of self to get their own selfish purposes across will use any passages of Scripture to suit their purpose. Reminded many years ago and such, perhaps you might have heard and such there of the USSR president at that time, Nikita Khrushchev delivered a message to the United Nations, of course, and he was a man that also managed to get himself into a rage every now and again, and thumping his table, uh, thumping, his, his, uh, thumping the table with his shoe. What he did, 
and what he preached from there within the United Nations, he kept quoting the Bible. And you see, communist leaders have a favourite passage of Scripture that they use out of the Bible to suit their purpose. It comes from Romans 13. Obey those that are in authority over you because they've been put there by God. Very convenient. Khrushchev, when he was asked after this and just there, when he'd quoted the Bible from there, someone made a comment to him and said, maybe you're a Christian. You're a closet Christian. Whereupon he lost his temper again and started thumping the table and said, I'm an atheist. And God knows I'm an atheist. Yeah, right. You see, understand the people here, as we see, like Assyrius and Vashti, they're pagan unbelievers. And pagan unbelievers have no personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ as we do. As such, Biblical counselling for them to relating to Christ and his marriage and love to the church is pointless. Speaking to them is simply about the need for love and forbearance and communication in their relationship. Well, really, it's only a Band-Aid. It's only a Band-Aid that doesn't solve the basic problem. And the basic problem is sin of self. That has to be dealt with. I know it sounds hard, but that is the reality. In theological terms, it's called neuthetic counselling. Neuthetic means change. It's a change in your thinking and thinking about putting God first instead of sinful self. Unless that happens then the relationship will never, ever be fully resolved. You see, this problem of self, it can be just as much a problem amongst believers as unbelievers. When we put ourselves forward in our own interest to what we think is right. I remember many years ago speaking uh, with a uh, an acquaintance, a college of mine who was pastoring to, very, uh, very uh, early in his ministry, took a, a call uh, to a very large church in Brisbane. He'd only been there a couple of weeks. And one Sunday morning when he came to church early and there to prepare, when he went inside, he found two of the deacons were there in, one of the, in, the, in the office. And they were having an argument almost to the point of violence. And he said to them, what's going on? And the problem wasn't with these men. The problem was with their wives. It was a very big church. And what they did was they had a music team and they had a choir. And one of the wives and such was in charge of the music team and the other one was the choir leader. And the choir leader, this woman, believed and said that the, that the music team should be heard and not seen. And so what she would do before the worship service was she'd put all of the music instruments with, the, with, with, with them, with their, with their seats and their music stands over in the corner out the way so that nobody could see them. 
And the music leader, what she would do is say, well, the choir is only there to assist, not to lead. And so therefore, she would then push them and put them over in the back of the church out of the way. And this stupid game of shifting chairs backwards and forwards between these women had been going on and it hadn't been dealt with. Kim's church eventually split over the issue. Satan had a field day. There's now two churches, Sunnybank and Sunnybank North, as a result. You see, it comes back again and such to the projection of self. This is what I think. Because no matter what happens and such there as to what they were doing in their service to the Lord, obviously their relationship with the Lord in self-centeredness instead of Christ-centeredness was the issue. So what do we do? What do we do if people come looking to you for advice? Well, obviously, of course, in it, you don't begin counselling them like you see here with this uh, Persian king and telling him that he's an egotistical fool and she needs to get down off a high horse. That's not going to work. But obviously, sin has to come into the discussion somewhere. And dealing with that sin has to begin with getting that relationship with the Lord right first. Yes, Graham, I'm sorry that I burdened you with all those very difficult names to start with from there. But the passage of Scripture that I want to conclude with and I want us to look at and to consider is where the Apostle Peter gives us some very good counselling advice for us as believers and also of course I think that there's some things that there for unbelievers as well because here it must start first and in 1 Peter 3.15 if you've got your verses there he says but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord always be prepared to give an answer Everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you, but to do this with gentleness and respect. The crucial, the crucial part of that message is in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord first. That comes first. You see, nowhere in the Bible will you find, and this is only a matter of uh, self-satisfaction uh, as well, is people are more than willing to take Jesus as Saviour. But nowhere in the Bible will you find Jesus addressed as Saviour and Lord. He is always addressed as Lord and Saviour. He comes to us first as Lord, then as Saviour. And when we have that and understand that first, then we can deal with our sin. I need to explain, I guess, a little bit more fully as to what Peter means by this setting apart in our hearts Jesus Christ as Lord. 
Roger made mention to it the other week in such there about, about this heart understanding from there. And it's more than just simply emotion. This Greek word for heart is cardia, from which we use words like cardiac and cardiology. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for heart is lebed. And it can also refer also, not just to your heart, but to your mind. It, and so consequently, in such, it's not just simply a heart or a, an emotional or a mind thought. The, 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 the intention of this, or what Peter is saying in this word, is to explain that it is our very person. It is our person that we have and submit and put Christ into our very person as being first in our life. It's a matter of getting that relationship right with him first and then we can deal with these relationships that we have with each other, giving advice to our friends. And it's this setting apart of the Lord first and not self that is the foundation stone of our Christian life and our living. It's the starting point for any advice that we might be asked to give by people. And we set apart in our hearts Christ as Lord first above anything else, whether in our own lives or whether we're helping others in their life situations. I think you'd agree that we go a long way towards living this life what God intends for us. Let's pray.